Good morning. I changed my title again, as usual. The most unusual message you will ever hear on Mother's Day. You know, this last week, Jeanette and I were with our mothers, and uh, I could go toe-to-toe with any of you on telling the glories of my mother or of my father. I could hold my own. I could also go toe-to-toe with you about talking about the glories of my wife as a mother. But I've been thinking about this whole thing in a little different way this week. I've been thinking about the way in which holidays like this can be exceedingly painful to some people, and the rest of us are oblivious to it. Not everybody can celebrate Mother's Day. Think of a young woman who's had an abortion. What does Mother's Day mean to her? Think of a young woman who's wanted to have a child and has not yet had one. What does Mother's Day mean to her? What does it mean to someone whose mother was abusive, uh, greatly immoral, perhaps had so many men at home that you wouldn't even know what a father looked like? Mother's Day could be a very, very painful time. And my fear is that for people like me, who have much to boast about in mothers and motherhood, that I may forget about all of those people who feel exactly the opposite from what I do, and I'm not even aware of it. And the midst of my praising my mother or my wife, I may actually be causing pain to them. So that's why I'm saying this is the strangest message on motherhood you'll ever hear. I didn't plan it this way. I didn't say I'm going to get to this text in Mark chapter 3 on Mother's Day. It just happened. And uh, so here we are, and I think our text really does address this, hopefully in a way that will make Mother's Day a joy to those for whom it is normally a sorrow. You remember that in uh, chapter 1, I think we're a little hot on this mic, by the way. Uh, Either that or I'm yelling already. Uh, In chapter 1, the emphasis was on authority, the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and then in chapter 2, you see it is on the opposition to our Lord Jesus Christ, largely based upon his authority. If you could go back to chapter 1 in that incident with the, in the synagogue with the demons, people said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Those were the two things that bothered the scribes and the Pharisees, and you see it in chapter 2. They don't like the new teaching because they want the old. That represents them. And they certainly do not want new teaching with authority because... That's something they lack. So the opposition arises in Mark chapter 2. And then you have Mark chapter 3, which is really about the popularity of our Lord and the consequences of that uh, in, in somewhat negative terms. It produces some problems, and that's where we'll find ourselves today. 
So let's look at the setting uh, that is set forth for us in verses 7 through 12. And it begins by saying to us that Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Now, not all translations will say that, but most translations do. It isn't just that he went away. And I think it, 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 this is a word which could, could mean he just went away. But it's apparent to me that this is a strategic withdrawal. Think of verse 6, where the uh, scribes and the Herodians have counseled together as to how to kill Jesus. I think that's time for a strategic retreat uh, and for our Lord, in a sense, to head away from the synagogue at this point, which is the source of a lot of the opposition. It's their home turf, so to speak, and to the sea. And you may say, well, you know, how how do you escape by going? And now you see this description of this huge crowd. The safest place in the world for Jesus, humanly speaking, was in a crowd. You remember the last week of our Lord's life? They are bound and determined to kill Jesus. What kept him from doing it? Well, other than it wasn't his time, he was in the temple. And they didn't dare accost the crowd to come try to take Jesus away. And remember, this is a crowd of people who have gathered in order that Jesus might do something for them, cast out a demon or give a healing. This is a crowd that wants something from Jesus. It wouldn't be very popular to be trying to go into that crowd and withdraw him uh, for his uh, execution. So he withdraws to the sea. And now we see this multitude that is described. This is a bigger multitude than we've ever seen in Mark. Now think about this. John the Baptist, he, he uh, in chapter 1, he attracts people from Judea and from even Jerusalem. That's kind of the distant point that comes down to the Jordan where he's baptizing. Jesus then goes to Galilee. But if you look at a map, what you'll discover is now the map is sort of blown out. Now you have a down in Idiomia to the south. You have Tyre and Sidon to the north. You have the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So you've got this widespread group of people that's come to hear and to see Jesus and in particular to uh, seek something from him. That's why I call, I say, chaos accompanies the crowd. I don't think that any of us can fathom how chaotic this must have been. Uh, I, I try to sometimes just kind of envision what this scene looked like. You know, uh, at the royal wedding, uh, we were gone when that was going on, but Jeanette taped it and I saw a, a few pictures. A few was enough for me. But, but one of the pictures I saw was the, the, the police that had been strategically placed so that when everybody came, you know, to, to see the, 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 the prince and his bride, that, that, uh, that they would be held within certain limits. And while there was a huge crowd, there was real order there, right? Now, envision yourself without all those police, you know, other than <laughs> Peter poking a guy to ribs or punching him in the face, which Peter was probably capable of doing. You know, they maybe they were Jesus' bodyguards, but... You've got this huge crowd. I mean, think of the size of that crowd. And now Jesus has retreated to the Sea of Galilee. And here are people who want something from Jesus, and they're crowding in, and their goal is to touch him, right? 
For many of them, the goal is to touch Jesus. So you've got this mob of people pressing in on Jesus, and then to punctuate it, you've got these outcries of demon-possessed people who are saying, you are the Son of God, and Jesus telling them to be quiet. To me, it is just chaos that is going on, and, and so that creates some of the scenario we get. Look at this. There's a getaway boat. That's what Jesus says in, in verse 9. By the way, I, I'm guessing it's one of those fishing boats that either was Peter and Andrews or James and John. They may have left their boats, <laughs> but, but old James or John goes back and says, Hey, Pop, could we borrow the boat during the day when you're not fishing? And it becomes his getaway vehicle as well as his preaching platform. You know, the crowds can press in on Jesus and they may, I don't know whether they get up to their knees in the water or up to their waist in the water, but at some point, that boat's going to be out far enough, the crowd's got to stay where they are. And from that point, Jesus can preach and minister, but they're not going to overwhelm uh, him and create absolute chaos. There is, it is apparent, and we know this will happen in chapter 5, but it's already become apparent to people that you don't have to ask Jesus for a healing. All you have to do is grab a hold of something and you get one. Now that happens later in the book of Acts too, doesn't it? But here, you remember you see the woman with the, with the hemorrhage, that issue, and she reaches out and grabs onto the hem of Jesus, and Jesus says, wait a minute, somebody touched me, and his disciples are saying, are you kidding in this crowd? <laughs> you know, of course somebody touched you. But that was happening here, it seems, in multiple times and ways, everybody's crowding upon Jesus to touch him to get the healing that they want. And then on top of that, the demons declaring that Jesus is the Son of God and him demanding them to be silent. That is a very chaotic scene and of a very large crowd. I put this parenthetical, D is parenthetical, you know, when it says Jesus went and got off by himself to pray, see that in chapter 1, see that in other places, or we say we see in, um, in, in Mark chapter 6, when the disciples have just come back from their missionary tour, the apostles, and he says, come away, come apart for a while. Can you understand why a few moments of quiet with the Father would be so important, not that it's not always important, but in, in the, in the chaos of all of that clamor and people pressing upon you, here's a point where Jesus gets away, spends the night with the Father, uh, and has moments to himself with the Father. And I would add, that is exactly what happens if you look at Luke's account in Luke chapter 6, Verses 12 and 13, if you look at the parallel account, what you'll discover is that our Lord goes up on a mountain, he spends the night in prayer, and then he calls his disciples to him, and out of those disciples, I'm, I'm emphasizing the word out of, out of those disciples, he selects 12 to be apostles. So what I see is a large throng of people, some are the Jewish opposition, some are people who are crowding upon Jesus 
for some need that they have. And then that more inner circle of people who really are following Jesus, like those in Luke chapter 8, the women who come with him and supply uh, some of the, the financial needs and so on. There is that greater group. And then there is that group that, that is selected out of those more intimate followers that become the apostles. And we know, of course, out of that group, Peter, James, and John would be uh, even a more elite uh, group amongst them. So our Lord Jesus uh, sets apart 12 as, uh, that he appoints as apostles. This is the first time that, that 12 has been given to us in Mark. It's been given to us elsewhere. We see in, in Mark chapter 1, you've got uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and then you pick up uh, Matthew, or Levi in, in chapter 2. But And then we read that Jesus is with his disciples and whatever, but this is the first time we see 12. I take it those 12 have been selected out of that larger group of people who are more serious followers of our Lord Jesus. Now, look at uh, just some observations about these 12. One, I know this is not popular in our feminist world. They're all men. Uh, What can I say? That's what the text tells us. They are a diverse group of men. This is not a a homogeneous (laughs) grouping of guys. (laughs) And, you know, I, I know it's easier to have a group of people who are all alike and like the same stuff. And I know that when you look at eHarmony.com and those places, somehow the ideal wife is the wife who loves everything you love and she's almost like you in a feminine form. What is with those guys? Anyway, so here you you have a diverse group of guys. Isn't that where real unity is evident? Where the work of the Spirit of God amongst them is evident? So here you have a group of guys who include fishermen and and a tax collector. I wouldn't have brought that guy into the mix, but Jesus does. And then you have uh, Simon the Zealot. Now, folks, he is the guy who has gone politically far right wing. He's out there and he's ready to topple the whole system. That's a pretty, that's just a sampling of the guys that are involved in this. Notice they are all Galileans. Kind of interesting, in spite of their diversity, that's one point of commonality. Remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, it says the, the two men, the two angels say to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? They're all Galileans, the disciples, the apostles. Fourth, they're a rather unimpressive group by worldly standards. I don't think these were the guys in their high school annual who were credited with being the most likely to succeed. They are, in the words of the Jewish opponents, they are unlearned, uneducated men. Not very likely to succeed. But that's the ones that Jesus chose. Now let's talk for a moment about the purposes of their appointment. I've done this in reverse order. I actually had it in the in the way it was stated in the text, and I've chosen to flip-flop it for a reason. One, he chose and appointed them so that they might be sent out, so that he might send them out. That's what the word apostle means, one who is sent out. 
And we know that's going to happen in Mark chapter 6 when he's going to send them out to all these various villages proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing, casting out demons, extending Jesus' ministry. We know that. We know from Acts that these are the men who are going to go forth proclaiming Christ and his resurrection after uh, Pentecost, and, and that certainly is a part of his purpose. But I want to I want to lean on the expression to be with him, if I can. I I think I, I now maybe you haven't had this problem, so maybe that you're going to look at me and say, "What is with you, man? Can't you read the text?" But, but but when you look at this and it says they're with him, I guess I've always thought of that in pragmatic terms. In other words, they're with Jesus to learn what he has for them to learn. They're with him to see how they're to go about their ministry and have Jesus evaluated. In other words, they're with him in a kind of apprenticeship. I think all that's true. I just don't think that's sufficient. I think Jesus called them to be with him because he loves the fellowship of men like that. That's my, that's my contention. He loves that fellowship. Remember in, in Luke chapter 22, he says to the disciples, with great desire, I have desired to eat this meal with you. I think our Lord Jesus delighted in the fellowship of his intimate friends. And, and I think if we miss that point here, I think we've missed something significant, especially in the context of chapter 3. Now, we come to verses 20 and 21. I call this an attempted family intervention. I love those new modern words <clears throat> where there's going to be this, this, this corrective course of action that's taken. This account is not found in any of the other Gospels. It's, it's unique to Mark, and it is, in my opinion, it is fascinating. Uh, I should tell you, too, that this is an example of what some people would call Mark's sandwich presentations. And, and I know this sounds strange, but he has a way of, of introducing a story, interrupting the story, and then picking that story back up. So you have, remember, the, the man, a synagogue leader who wants Jesus to come and to, and to heal his daughter. And then the, in, in chapter 5, is it? And, and then uh, you have the interruption of the of the woman with the hemorrhage, and then the word comes to 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 Jesus and the and the official, don't bother, she's dead, and 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 the story goes on, and Jesus goes and raises her from the dead. So there's a sandwich in that. Here's the sandwich: twenty and twenty-one introduces the intent of the family to intervene. This is they're not there. They need to go there. And so you see their intent expressed. Then there's this interruption of, of the uh, scribes who are going to say, Jesus really delivers people from demons through demon power. It's through Satan that he does these things. Jesus deals with that, and then he will come back and conclude chapter 3 with the question, who is my mother and my brother's? And so it's a sandwich deal, if you if you like that uh, analogy that he is uh, introducing to us here. 
So Jesus' family hears of what's going on. Now, we know the situation where the man was lowered through the roof. The house was still filled with people. They couldn't get the stretcher in. They came down through the roof. So here is Jesus in a house surrounded by people. And seemingly, even when the family arrives, they can't get into the house. It's so packed with people. There's no way for them to get in. And so they get word of this. And one of the, one of the things they've heard is that in the press of all of this, not only Jesus, it says they have not been able to eat bread. In other words, they haven't had a sandwich, haven't had a lunch break. Isn't this typical? I hate to say this on Mother's Day. Doesn't it sound like a mother? You haven't had your nutrition for the day, right? And if it was today, she'd slip him a few vitamin pills on top of that. Boy, I know, I get those every day. So here is this concern about Jesus and his disciples not eating. It's a legitimate concern. And knowing what we know about the crowds and how they're pressing in on Jesus, it's a real assessment. Jesus is, in a sense, locked into a house, can't get out to eat, doesn't seem to be bothered about that. And uh, consequently, the family thinks this is really bad. In fact, they think he's lost his mind. That's the bottom line. He's out of his head. He's lost it. And so that requires, they think, an intervention. They've rightly assessed the circumstance. They've wrongly assessed the cause. The cause is not Jesus. The cause is not some flaw in his way of thinking. The flaw is people pressing to get near him for a healing and to hear his teaching. Now, the thing I want you to see is this is right alongside in our sandwich. <laughs> you know, if the, 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 the meat of the sandwich is going to be the slices of bread we start with or the family thing. But the meat in that sandwich is all about the scribes and attributing Jesus' exorcisms to Satan. Isn't it interesting that you have, therefore, the family assessment of Jesus is he's mentally ill. That's what they're saying. He's mentally ill. We've got to go get him, get him out of there, get him away from people and put him in some place where they have white coats and they can take care of him. Now, the next group says Jesus is demon possessed. Now, what I'm trying to say is there is a difference in degree. There is a similarity in kind. Both family and enemies have made the wrong conclusion about Jesus. His family is near, nearer, I guess I would say, to, to those who are saying Jesus is demon-possessed than they are to the truth. Even his family, at this point, is in opposition to the Lord Jesus. So, that takes us to their alternative explanation for Jesus delivering people from uh, demons, from for exorcisms. Notice in this that the focus is on Jesus' ability to cast out demons, his authority over demons. It's not talking about his ability, ability to heal, but only 
his ability to cast out demons. Now, go back. You could mentally go back to chapter 1 where you see the, the, the demonized man saying, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then Jesus demands that he become silent. He cleanses this man. And the people are saying, wow, a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. So the demons are subordinate to Jesus, right? Now, when you come to chapter 3, and you see this uh, the same scenario uh, that, that's coming up. Jesus has been casting out demons. Now they say he is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Now here's what I see happening. It, it's really a pretty subtle move. His ability, his authority over demons, his ability to cast out demons is evident everywhere he goes from within the crowd, demonized people are crying out, you are the Son of God. And when Jesus orders them to be silent, they obey. When he orders them to come out, they obey. I think the subtlety of this is that the scribes from Jerusalem are saying, demons are subject to Jesus. That means... He's got his power that's over demons, but in their acknowledgement of his authority, they're actually saying we're subject to you in the sense that you are our leader. Maybe I'm wrong. That's the way I read the text. So now they've made this very subtle twist. If Jesus is indeed the leader of demons and they're following him as their leader, then the implications for that are incredible. That must mean that all of the things that Jesus does that are miraculous are actually demon-powered. Isn't that an incredible statement? Demon-powered. So they twist the facts and they say Jesus is getting his power from the dark side. Notice the Lord's response. It says Jesus, in the New American Standard Version, it says Jesus begins to speak in parables. A number of the translations don't say that. And when you go get to go and endure Greek class, they'll tell you the imperfect tense can sometimes talk about the beginning of something, that you are beginning to do something. I think that the translators are right when they say Jesus begins to speak in parables in response to what's going on. And we know this is preceding chapter 4, where we're going to start with a parable of the soils and have all these parables related to the kingdom. Jesus' answer is a simple one in, 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 in spite of all of their inferential stuff. Jesus is just saying, when does Satan seek to do harm to himself? You know, is Satan seeking to commit suicide? Is that what he's doing? If indeed I am doing this through Satan's power, through Satan's power, I'm overcoming demons. If that's the case, where's the win in that? It just doesn't make sense. So he sets that argument aside, which leads us to the unpardonable sin. I know you were all waiting for me to get there. So let's talk about it. They've attributed, the unpardonable sin in this text is attributing to Jesus the power of Satan. They're saying Jesus operates in the power of Satan 
rather than in the power of the Spirit. Now, mentally, take a trip back with me to chapter 1. I think it's about verses 9 through 11. The baptism of Jesus is the time when the Holy Spirit comes and remains upon our Lord. So from that point on, we see Jesus doing his miraculous work through the power of the Holy Spirit. When you say Jesus is doing what he does through the power of Satan, you are now blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is very clear to say any blasphemy can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You can blaspheme me, Jesus is saying. You can blaspheme the Father. I wouldn't recommend doing it for long, but you can blaspheme the Father. That is a forgivable sin. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin forever. And the reason is, in my understanding, is because the Holy Spirit is the one who is the instrument by which God's message is made clear to men, whereby he convicts men of their sin, of Christ's righteousness, and of the judgment that is to come. The Spirit is the one who brings people to life. He takes dead men spiritually and gives them life, and they then respond and come to Christ. So the Spirit, in a sense, is like a rope being lowered to somebody uh, in a pit, and that person burns the rope. Well, folks, your chances have just gone away. That's why we see our Lord Jesus saying in Mark, when they ask him, why, you're, why are you speaking in parables? He says, so they will not understand and they will not believe. That's the execution of the sentence. Now notice in, in the notes there, it's the sin of an unbeliever. It's the sin of an unbeliever which makes him or her unsavable. It is not the sin of a believer that causes them to lose their salvation. Jesus is very specific about the sin and its consequences. People who agonize, about, Christians who agonize about committing the unpardonable sin are just not getting it. And in fact, the very fact they worry about sin is one of the evidences of life. I'm not saying that's true and it proves everybody's a believer who worries about sin. I'm just saying that's a symptom. That's a sign of life. So that's my take on the unpardonable sin. Now the question comes at the end, who is the family of Jesus? Remember we saw in 20 and 21, the family is going to go rescue Jesus. So they're going to go and they're going to, uh, they're going to call him out and, uh, and, and take charge of him. And I say, AK arrest. Folks, it's the word for arrest. They're going to seize him. They're not just going to say, you know, come on, let's, let's, let's go on, get a hamburger, Big Mac down the street. They're going to seize him and take charge because he is out of his mind. So it's the other end of the sandwich. And uh, they're going to. They're, they've set out to take charge. Now they're outside the house where Jesus is sequestered. They can't apparently get in, and so they send word in. 
And that's when the message comes to Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they're outside and they're calling for you. They're summoning you. You've got your orders. Come out. I'm wondering if that's not really trying to lure him out of the house. I mean, do those guys really want to go in and try and drag Jesus out in front of that crowd? I wouldn't recommend it. I think they want to get Jesus apart from the crowd and then haul him off. Put him someplace where he won't hurt himself or others. And that's where Jesus, hearing of their summons, identifies who his real family is. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about on those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, bringing this full circle, I now go back to the calling and the appointing of the apostles that was early in our text. And I would suggest to you that when he calls them to be with him, in effect, Jesus is creating a new family. Now, remember, Jesus' brothers and sisters are unbelievers. John chapter 7, they are unbelievers at this moment in time, not believers. They are hostile to what Jesus is doing. And now they think Jesus is out of his mind. Jesus is creating, I believe, a new family. Those who are intimately associated with him, I would say as his disciples and as his apostles. So, how do we take this and apply it? I would say, number one, we need to recognize as people who are very family-oriented that Christianity isn't always family-friendly. If you think that being a Christian means warm, fuzzy family relationships, it might. It might not. Listen to this text, Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 21. Brother will hand over brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Pretty strong words. And what it says is following Christ is a priority. And in some families, there will be a high price to pay for keeping and observing that priority. Following Jesus is not necessarily family friendly in biological terms. Here's the trade-off. The words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, there is no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive in this 
age. A hundred times as much homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, all with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Isn't that the trade-off? The trade-off is those who choose to follow Christ become a part of the intimate family of God and have intimate fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ that surpasses any human relationship. In that sense, the church is the family of God, is it not? Isn't that why Paul refers to fellow believers as brothers and sisters? We are the family of God. And and what, what I'm trying to say to those that I, I, I brought into focus at the beginning of this message, for those of you who find Mother's Day or Father's Day or holidays a painful thing because of broken families, we are your family. We are your family. And it is a better family than any human family on earth. What a great, great passage. Now, Mother's Day, Father's Day, listen to what we see. I think, and I'm doing a little course correction now on discipleship. People are, uh, discipleship is a hot idea uh, today. But too often, I think, the stress is placed on discipline and, you know, following orders and, and, and whatever, and missing, I think, the intimacy and the fellowship of that. When you look at Paul, I do not see a drill sergeant. I do not see a drill sergeant. Listen to his words to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. Although we could have imposed our weight as, imp- as apostles of Christ, could have pushed people around, instead we became little children among you, like a nursing mother caring for her own children. With such affection for you, we were happy to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, as to how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was toward you who believe. As you know, we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. One of the things that bothers me about sort of pop psychology in Christian circles is the statement that if you have not known a godly father, how will you ever come to understand God the Father as a God of love. That is rot. Ephesians says, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, that it, it is from whom all fatherhood... Let me look at that because I'm not going to read it right to you if I don't. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. You want to understand fatherhood? Then you study the fatherhood of God. You want to be the kind of father you ought to be? Then you study the fatherhood of God. It's he who enables us to see earthly fatherhood as we should. It is not earthly fatherhood that should allow us to see him as we should. We've got to turn this thing around, folks. 
And we've got to think about it in terms of how God revolutionizes our idea of fatherhood and motherhood and how it's exemplified in Paul and others. It's a critical element. So I say to you, if this is usually a sad day for you, it ought to be a day of rejoicing. Because God, if you are a believer, God has made you a part of a great family. And you can know fatherhood and motherhood in a way no earthly person can. It's possible you're on the outside looking in. And I would say to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel that says you're a sinner. That is true. It is a gospel that offers people a, a, an escape from the punishment of hell. But it is also the offer of intimate relationship with God in his family. And that's what we would invite you to. If you've never joined the family, join it now. Father, thank you for your word and for this text. May you make it real in our hearts. And for those who have found Mother's Day somehow a day of sorrow and sadness, may this be a day of joy and rejoicing for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.